I'm going to do something very uncharacteristic of myself today, and then I'll criticize myself for it later. Uh, But any verse reference that I have for you today, as there are many, will be on the screens. Uh, The last couple of weeks, uh, last week and this week, we've been kind of asking and answering the question, who is Trinity Baptist Church and, and what are we doing? And last week we looked at the mission statement, this new mission statement. Now let me ask, can anybody recall it? Real question. If you can recall it, raise a hand. Trudy got like almost the full version. You think you got it? Let her rip. That's exactly it. Taking steps together to love God and make him known. Functionally, it's the same thing that, that our, our old mission statement already said. It's not a big change, but, uh, but it's, it's more usable, uh, just being less, less wordy. And so I want to just kind of remind us of the four kind of major emphases in that statement of taking steps together to love God and make him known. Uh, the reality is we're all taking steps. We're all in progress. None of us is perfect. God is refining all of us. And so we want to be a church uh, of, of people all over the spectrum of where we are in that walk and where we are in taking steps together. We also want to be kind and gracious as people take steps and as we take steps. But we are taking steps together. We're in this together. A church is a gathered people. And the reality, as we've seen recently, even in Ephesians 4, is, is that the church needs you and you need the church. The church is not an organization, uh, it's not a location. It's not a building, it is a living organism uh, made by God and he gives life to it. And so we need each other. But we want to take steps together to love God. Uh, Love being uh, um, a wholehearted reality. We want to love God with everything, with our hearts, with our minds, with our lives, with our money, with our families, with our work. Everything is to be given to love God And then the mission of the church is to make him known. We have an eternity to praise God. Think on this with me for a moment. I want this really to be impressed upon our minds. I want it to to even weigh on us a little bit um, in a good way. But we have all of eternity to praise God. We only have from now until we die or until the Lord returns should he not tarry to tell others about what he's done. We don't get the privilege of evangelism forever. We get the privilege of praise forever. But we don't get evangelism forever. And life is short. I I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. I've been thinking about Psalms, you know, where the psalmist prays, Lord, uh, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Time is the one resource you'll never get back. You can make and lose money. You can make and lose friends. You can gain and lose jobs and houses and all kinds of things. But you'll never get the time back. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And part of maybe what's been, maybe this is my version of a midlife crisis. I don't know. I've just been thinking about the fact that that I have more days behind me than ahead of me, most likely. What am I going to do with that? What am I going to do with that? 
Because this little bit of time on earth that we have, it's all we got. It's the only opportunity we have to evangelize. It's also, by the way, the only opportunity we have to praise God for all eternity through suffering. There will be no suffering for eternity. This is our only shot to praise God through suffering. Do you want to make it through the suffering that there is in this life complaining? Another thing that's been weighing on me, 1 Corinthians Uh, we're told that the nation of Israel has given to us an example of what not to do. Specifically, complain. I think we way underestimate the sin of complaint. Because functionally, complaint, at the core of complaint, is the idea that God got it wrong. Oh God, if you were better, smarter, wiser, you wouldn't have made this this way. You would have got this right, Lord. But, But you didn't. You got this wrong. When my spouse behaves that way, when my children behave that way, when my parents behave that way, when a loved one dies, when I lose a job, Lord, you got that wrong. I don't want to spend my life complaining. And I'm a pretty good complainer. But but this, this time in eternity, it's all we've got to praise him through suffering. It's all we've got to praise him through disunity. COVID. The economy, whatever, this is it. we got to do something with it. The mission of the church is to make him known. The mission of the church on earth primarily, I'm going to make a bold statement here. The mission of the church on earth is not primarily, or rather maybe I would say solely, to glorify God. Because we glorify him through praise, we glorify him through evangelism. We glorify him through everything. The the mission of the church on earth is not solely to praise God. It is to make him known. We've got to do that. We've got to do that. But last week we also talked about this idea of, of Trinity being a little bit like a river. And I said when I, when I got to the church I was a youth pastor at in Tucson, uh, one of the, the executive pastors called me into his office and he said, hey, Christ Community Church is a little bit like a river. And this is the direction the river is flowing. You, you can float anywhere in the river you want. You just got to stay in that river. What they didn't tell me was where the banks of the river were. And so as we've been kind of thinking about that as an analogy, we've been asking, what are the banks of the river? If the North Star, if if the the direction of the course of Trinity is to, uh, to take steps together to love God and make him known, what keeps us going in that direction? What keeps us from mission drift? What keeps us from uh, veering off course? If, if you've, uh, I mean, it's incredible to me that we can launch satellites and probes millions of miles into space and intersect planets, moving objects perfectly. Now, how far off can NASA be when they launch that satellite and if they're not going to miss the planet entirely. It's got to be perfect. You, you get the direction off just a little bit, and by the time you get there, 
You're millions and millions of miles away from your target. How do we ensure that Trinity Baptist Church, from here until the Lord returns, is pointed right at the glory of God and the spread of gospel, the gospel in the world? We hem ourselves in. And we do that with doctrine. Our doctrinal statement is well-defined. Maybe I should teach through it. There's some hard stuff in there but it's well-defined. That's one bank. We can't cross the boundary of our doctrine. We can't, we can't cave on what we believe. But then the other bank that keeps us pointed in the right direction is our values. And so today I want to talk about uh, uh, the values of Trinity Baptist Church. You have these printed in your uh, worship folder there, and so we're going to look at them today. Uh, value number one is the Bible, God's Word. And this value reads this, all, trini- all teaching at Trinity is from and grounded in the Bible. We are not always right, but we know who is. We believe that the Bible is God's primary way of revealing himself and governing his people, which is why all leadership and decision-making at Trinity comes under the authority of God's written Word. Let me share a few verses with you. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We want people to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? It happens through the word of Christ. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Now this is to a pastor, so this is really a charge mostly to the elders uh, and the pastors of the church. Do you want to know what the responsibility of the pastor is? Uh, whether, whether it's uh, maybe even a director level, but especially of pastors, what is our charge? Maybe even more specifically, What should you as the church hold us accountable to? It is this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Now, maybe some of you know of Andy Stanley's reference to double-barrel preaching. I mean it in a completely different context, but if if there is ever double-barrel preaching, it is this. Paul has just loaded both barrels of the shotgun and fired them at us. He's about to tell Timothy, hey, look, before I tell you this, I want to remind you that I'm telling you this in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. So the Lord is on my side as I give you this charge. Oh, and by the way, uh, this Christ whom is here with me affirming these things that I'm telling you, he's going to judge the living and the dead, including you, Timothy and you, Logan. And I'm going to charge you by his appearing and his kingdom all the way to the finish line, all the way to his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Not preach psychology. Not preach Disney. Not preach Hollywood. Not preach yourself. Preach the word. I'm happy to use myself in in sermon illustrations where I'm a failure. I I try and never use them where I I, I might be a success. Because I am not the hero 
or the hope or the head of Trinity Baptist Church. Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is. And so we preach his word, that word by which faith comes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Be ready in season and out of season. I don't know what those seasons are. Paul doesn't tell us. But I do know one thing. You're either in it or you're out of it. So whatever the season is, it's all the time. I used to think it was mostly external. Whether the church wants to hear the word or doesn't want to hear the word, preach the word until I hit a season in my own ministry where it took every ounce of effort I had to preach every Sunday morning because I just didn't want to. Whatever the season is, we preach the word. Paul said he preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. How do we do that? How do we preach the word? By reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why, why did you put that in there, Paul? I mean, complete patience? Let me ask you. When somebody else in the church is taking steps and they're not perfect yet, do you have complete patience? Or, or do you get frustrated? Why can't they just get it right? Why can't they just do things my way? Why, why can't they just be a little more like me? I heard somebody say one time that the best definition of legalism they'd ever heard is, is asking people to be like me instead of like Jesus. I'll let you think on that for a while. But reprove, rebuke, exhort, and teaching. In other words, we tell people what they're to think and what they're not to think. And what they're to do and what they're not to do. But I don't get to make it up. My job is to preach the word. I'm not a chef. I'm a waiter. My job is not to make the meal that you feast on. It's just to bring it to the table. 2 Peter 1.3 his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You know what two things are not present anywhere in any of these verses? You and me. They're not anywhere. You don't produce faith in anybody. You don't provide salvation for anybody. We're just messengers. We're encouragers. And God uses us. But God's word and God's spirit are what changes hearts. The Corinthian church was divided by who they follow. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I, that's Peter. I follow Christ. And Paul asked the question, were any of these guys crucified for you? No, only Jesus was. We shouldn't be followers of people. We should be followers of Jesus. And then he makes the bold statement. One person planted, another watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the increase. Sometimes we plant the seed of God's word into people's lives Sometimes God uses us to bring some water to it and something grows. But in either case, it's God who brings the growth. And so it is the word of God and the spirit of God that do the work of God in the world. 
And so our job is not to be creative. Our job is not to be, uh, um, to, to exposit the times. Certainly we want to speak truth into the times. The church has always been called to that. But we want to speak the word of God so that the spirit of God can call the people of God. So we're not only going to talk about the Bible, we're going to teach the Bible. We're going to open it up and we're going to explain it. There's two important steps to that for, for you. The charge for us is a little different. But number one, please listen. Bring your Bible to church. I don't care if it's digital or if somebody cut a tree down and killed an animal to get it here. Bring your Bible to church. I was, I think, in middle school, and I was not in the habit of bringing my Bible to church, and somebody looked at me and said, why would you go to battle without your sword? I thought, that's a great question. Why would I go to battle without my sword? So I bring my Bible to church, and so should you. And secondly, read your Bible regularly. Read your Bible regularly. Dusty Bibles always lead to dirty lives. It's the reality of it. Uh, we might be out, but I would commend the Bible reading, I would commend any Bible reading plan to you. It doesn't matter what Bible reading plan you use, pick one and use it. This is the one I wrote and I've found value in for me. That doesn't mean you'll find value in it for you. I can't do seven days a week. I'm constantly behind. So it's a, excuse me, a five day a week Bible reading plan. But we're going to prioritize the Bible. Number two, the gospel. The gospel the gospel of grace is at the core of everything we do. We strive to make the gospel clear to all and central in the life of our church. Let me read that again. We strive to make the gospel clear to all and central in the life of our church. We also strive to be gracious in our interactions with others, knowing that in Christ God has been gracious Towards us. What do I mean by strive to make the gospel clear? Uh, here, I try and approach every Sunday morning, every teaching time, with the reality, probably, that somebody in this room is not saved. So I'm not going to assume you know what the gospel is. I, I want to articulate the gospel. I want to tell you the good news. By the way, the gospel is not just for the unsaved. The gospel is for every single one of us. We need it every day. You should preach the gospel to yourself daily. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-5. through Paul, writing to a church, an established church, says, um, For I delivered to you as of first importance. The gospel is the most important thing. It is the, the treasure of the church. One of the ways we talk about this on staff is that everything we do, from coffee to maybe donuts or cookies or hot chocolate or light fights, it, 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 none of it is the jewel. It's the setting. Wives, how many of you were happy to, to get a wedding ring or an engagement ring that had no stone in it. It was just the setting. Nobody gushes over that. 
And if your husband maybe did that, I'm sure that what came along with it was the promise of a stone when it could be afforded. The gospel is the stone. Everything else is setting. Everything else is just to uphold that. Everything else is to put that on display. Everything we do that's, that's fun, I mean, there might be purposes of fellowship there, and that's great and important too. But, but everything in the life of the church that is not gospel is setting. It is holding up the stone of the gospel for us and the world to see clearly, for it to shine brightly in the light of Christ. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. There's the Bible. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. First John chapter 2, verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What did you hear at the beginning of your walk with Christ? You heard the gospel. That's the beginning of faith. It's the beginning of salvation. It is the first step. You hear and then believe and repent. Let that, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So in an effort to live these values out, let me clarify for you what I believe the gospel is. This is not original to me. But I think one of the best presentations of the gospel uh, I've heard can, can be broken down into four parts. And I want you to have this as a tool in your tool belt for sharing the gospel. The gospel must contain at least three thing, or four things. God, man, Jesus, response. God, man, Jesus, response. God has eternally existed in three persons as one God who is perfectly holy in all of his attributes. He never sins. And he created us. And he created us in his image. And he demands that we be holy as he is holy. That's who God is. But man, being created in God's image, both by choice and by nature, has fallen into sin. We have fallen far from grace. We have removed ourselves far from God. And by our sin, we have not only rebelled against God, we have not only disobeyed God, but we have incurred the just punishment that is due for us. Unless you think that, that hell and eternity in hell is too harsh a consequence for our sin, let, re let me remind you of something. I'll use the words of John Piper because I think he said it beautifully. The depth of our depravity is not measured against our own sinfulness. The depth of our depravity is measured against the dignity of the one whom we have sinned against. And it is an infinite dignity. What makes our sin so bad, no matter how big or small we perceive it to be, is that it is against a holy and perfect and just and good and glorious and gracious God. And therefore, it is infinitely wicked because he is infinitely glorious. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, sent his son. And as God 
He is a sufficiently valuable payment to repair our damage to the glory of God. Why couldn't Jesus just be a man? Because the the depth of our depravity is measured against the one whom we have sinned against. The only payment sufficient is an infinitely glorious payment. It had to be God who paid for our sin. But there's a problem, and that is that God cannot die. So what must God do in order to die? He must, by his infinite power, become one of us. And as truly man, he is able to die in our place. And as truly God, it is an infinitely valuable payment to restore God's infinite glory that we sinned against. And then there is our response. Our response is that of faith and repentance. That of faith and repentance. Not as a work, but as simple trust. I think the best way to think about this is to think in terms of of affection. Because faith and repentance are not two separate things. They're they're, uh, two ways to look at the same thing. If I'm standing by the piano... And I say, you know, I've got my phone on the piano, and I'm at home, you know, I set my phone on the piano. I'm like, oh, I want to go sit on the couch and and look at my phone. And I realize, oh, I left my phone back there. I must turn towards the phone and turn away from the couch, right? Two actions? No, no. Turning towards the phone and turning away from the couch is the same action, just looked at from a different angle. That's what faith and repentance is. If if Christ, I shouldn't compare Jesus to a phone, that's dumb, but but if Christ is on this side of the stage and my life is, is making a beeline away from him, In that moment where where my affections are changed and I turn away from my sin, that's repentance, and towards Christ, that's faith, I'm saved. I have to love Christ more than my sin. Faith and repentance are not two different things. They're the same thing looked looked at from opposite sides. Faith is is the turning towards Jesus and repentance is the turning away from sin. That is our response. And oh, how much damage has been done in the church by neglecting repentance. Oh, it's, it's fine. Just believe Jesus, profess faith in him, ask him into your heart and live like hell all of your days and you're okay. But when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks Jesus, what must I do to be saved? He knows, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He knows who Jesus is and what Jesus has to offer. And Jesus hits him right in the affections. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. And he went away sad for he was rich. He loved his wealth more than he loved his Savior. And he went away sad. Notice that Jesus doesn't change the terms He doesn't say, stop, hold on a minute. Let me lighten the load for you. Let's barter here. No, you either love him or you do not. If I could maybe a little more gently suggest we we stop teaching our children to ask Jesus into their hearts. It's, It's not biblical language. Yes, Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that that Christ would dwell down deep in our hearts through faith. 
I, I understand that. But notice that that dwelling of Christ in our hearts is through faith. We, we need to talk to our children in that way. We, we, can, we can speak to them in language that they can understand without saying, oh, just ask Jesus into your heart. We could simply say, love Jesus with your whole heart. I, I tell Bradley all the time, you have to love Jesus more than you love your sin. Let, let's, let's represent what faith and repentance means in reality. Somebody who might say, oh yeah, I'll ask Jesus into to my heart, might not be willing to love the Savior more than their sin. And then when we, when we profess them saved, and then, if I could maybe speak to a touchy subject here, they grow up into adulthood and they walk away from the faith and we say, we wonder why. Now, their faith is between them and God. Remember, it's not us who changes hearts. It's the word of God and the spirit of God who does. But I think one of the greatest ways we can stem the tide of people growing up and walking, to the church, walking out away from the church and away from the faith is to start using better biblical language. Stop asking our kids to ask Jesus into their heart, which doesn't mean a whole lot, and start asking them to love the Savior more than their sin. Is that a progress or a process? You bet. Like a dog returns to its vomit, we all return to our sin to lick it up, says the psalmist. Remember, it is not our perfection that evidences our faith. It is our process. Are you being conformed into the image of God? Are you pressing into love of the Savior? We're going to value the gospel. God, man, Jesus response. I'll start moving more quickly. Number three, unity. Number three, unity. Everyone is valuable and precious to God. If I could, for a moment, share um, a bit out of Genesis, you don't have to turn there, but it intrigues me that in Genesis 2 and 3, we're, we're explained at great length how much or how people are made in the image of God. And then you get to Genesis 5 and 6, and the earth is a mess. And you get to 7, and God floods it and destroys everybody except for one family of eight people. And after uh, several hundred days of floating in this big, gigantic boat, they land on a mountain. They get out of the mountain. There's a new garden. Noah makes wine from the garden, and then he gets drunk. Okay, the problem of sin has not been fixed. It's still present. And then God says almost immediately to Noah, if somebody takes somebody's life... His life will be required of him because man is created in the image of God. I think what God is doing here is saying, look, yes, sin, you all were made to be mirrors. You were all made to reflect the glory of God. And the sin in your life has completely shattered it. The image of God in, in us is, is a messed up image. But it is an image nonetheless. 
And we were not only created in the image of God pre-sin, but post-sin, we're still created in the image of God. Everybody, no matter how sinful, is valuable and precious to God. And if I might get up on maybe another soapbox, Jeepers, I'm just stacking them this morning. Church, stop being concerned with what sin it is that somebody gravitates towards. There is no sin that's better or worse than the others. God is far more concerned with the sins of the church than the sins of the world. I'm going to say that again. That's Thomas Watson. God is far more concerned with the sins of the church than the sins of the world. We can't, as Jerry Bridges called them, have respectable sins. You can struggle with gluttony but not homosexuality. Why not? Is any sin unsavable? Is what matters in my life as one who has repented, is what matters the sin I'm drawn to or that I'm repenting of it and fighting against it? Why throw stones at people because they have some sin different than me when I'm just being perfectly comfortable and content with my own version of respectable sins. Everyone is valuable and precious to God. Everyone. Everyone. When a a gay couple walks through the door, are you going to invite them to sit next to you? What if they're covered from head to toe in tattoos? What if... What if they need an ashtray outside the front door? What if they're sitting next to you and their leg is going a million miles an hour because they are just desperate for their next fix? Invite them. Welcome them. Invite them to sit next to you. And then know that everything we do will be setting to uphold the stone of the gospel because we will not assume it. We will preach it. Don't we want them here? And isn't something broken in us if we don't see that we're just like them? There's no them. There's no difference between them and us. Not not in nature. We were once dead like they are, and we've been made alive by God. And by God's grace, he can make any sinner alive. No one is outside of the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone is valuable and precious to God. At Trinity, we strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because the kingdom of God is not divided among people by class, age, ethnicity, gender, gender, political interest, or any other way. If you have white hair, the young people in this room need you. When was the last time you invited them over for a meal? or took them out, or spent time with with somebody much, much younger than you. Do it. The likelihood that they'll say yes is really, really, really high. And people like that have, uh, we've lived far from our family, our whole married life, and people like that have been of great spiritual benefit to my children. Psalm 71, 18. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. 
until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Are you begging God for just a little more time so that the next generation might hear the gospel from you? That's what the psalmist is doing. Matthew 5, 23 through 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, if you come to worship and and you realize that you have done something to somebody else, you've sinned against them, you have the responsibility to go. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. When do you have the responsibility to go and reconcile any breakdown in relationship? All the time. You're either the offending party or the offended party, and either way, you're commanded to go, to go work it out. And so we work it out. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. If you're unwilling to be reconciled to your brother in Christ, fundamentally you believe that the cross is sufficient to secure God's forgiveness but not yours. Oh, can we see the pride in that? Lord, thank you for the death of your son who who secured my forgiveness. But, But Lord, I'm above you. And therefore, this sin against me, it's, it's a greater offense. And I'm glad that your grace has secured their forgiveness, but oh, it can't secure mine. Oh, church, if the blood of Jesus Christ can secure God's forgiveness, it must secure ours. I don't think this can be underestimated right now. I have seen nothing so devastating to the unity of the church in my life than COVID. And honestly, I don't think COVID is the real issue. You know what is? Fear. But the most frequent command in Scripture is fear not. Because God's in control. He's sovereign. This didn't catch him off guard. He knows when and if it's going to end. Maybe it's never going to end. What are we going to do then? You should should have your convictions and your conscience about what to do here. And they should be informed by Scripture. And you should live according to your conscience. I, I probably need that advice too. I think Scripture puts a clear mandate on the church to gather, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, dangerous or not dangerous, Legal or not legal. But I've probably been a little too hard on people who don't see things my way in this matter. And so I I probably have some repenting to do there as well. But the reality is this is tough. COVID isn't probably going to go away anytime soon. We got to keep moving forward. 
We're going to prioritize unity. Number four, we're going to value relationships. Healthy relationships are essential for growth in Christ and the spread of the gospel. Uh, Notice that this does not say healthy relationships are good. Healthy relationships are essential for growth in Christ and the spread of the gospel. At Trinity, we prioritize humble relationships where we can both give to and receive from others in the body of Christ. A couple of uh, verses here that might seem strange, but let me draw something out of them. Luke 7, 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. We probably all know this story of the woman who is weeping at Jesus' feet, dripping tears on his feet and using her hair to clean them. This would be filthy, a filthy job. And wiped them with her hair, or wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. What does that have to do with relationships? Well, follow along with me as we look at John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, uh, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What's the point of all of this? Do we have to wash each other's feet? In a sense, yes, but what I want to see here is the ability in Jesus both to wash feet and to have his feet washed. He knew how to give in relationships, and he knew how to receive in relationships. If you're married, spend some time thinking on that. But so it is in the church. Some of you are givers. You need to work on having places in the church where you receive. Because you're not God. You need to be ministered to as well. Some of you are takers. And you need to get to work and serve some other people. But relationships are are essential. And if Jesus knew how to wash and be washed, how much more must we? Relationships are essential. Number five, dependence. The Christian life is a life lived in dependence. We depend upon God for all things, expressing our dependence in prayer. 
We depend also upon each other for intercession, encouragement, correction, and love. In other words, there's a vertical aspect to our dependence and a horizontal aspect to our dependence. For most of us, as good Americans, we prioritize vertical dependence and, and, uh, and not so much the horizontal dependence. I don't need anybody else. Strong enough on my own. It's just me and God. We'll get it done. God helps those who helps them, help themselves. We quote that like scripture. I hope you know it's not. Dependence. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is, is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Vertical, I want God to do this in you, but in order to comprehend the love of God, you need all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. John chapter 15, verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Even before the fall, it wasn't good for man to be alone. God creates a man and for the first time says it is not good. Then he puts a woman in the garden. But by the way, their family wasn't enough. They were to be fruitful and multiply. God called his old covenant people into one nation and now he has placed us in the church. We desperately need God and we desperately need each other. We're gonna prioritize environments where both things can happen. And number six, and finally, discipleship. We know that only God can change hearts, change lives, and change our community. God has graciously invited the church to be a part of that transformation process. God has given his church the role of growing believers and evangelizing the lost. Like Jesus, we strive to share the gospel with those who are far from God and to do spiritual good to other believers. We intentionally point people to Jesus and to transformational environments where we can grow and help others grow. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice that Jesus didn't start his discipleship process with believers. He started with 12 unbelievers. Making disciples starts with evangelism, but that's what we're called to. We first teach people to, to believe. We present the gospel. We, we command them to believe and repent. And then when they do, we baptize them. And this is a reference to more than just dunking. Maybe some of you have believed and you have not been dunked. Let's change that. But baptism has much more uh, uh, meaning to it than just getting wet. It signifies placement into the church. The only logical next step when you have been saved is to get connected into a church. And then from there, we teach them to obey everything that he has commanded. We continue to teach, teach to observe. And we're all to do this. We're all to do good for others, spiritual good for others. This is not a show that we put on for you to enjoy. This is a family meal where, we, where you come to feast on the word of God. And I'm merely the waiter. 
But, but something is required of us. I couldn't believe it the first time I saw Michael Phelps diet when he was training. The guy was as skinny as a rail and eating like 10,000 calories a day. How is that possible? There was exercise in his life. The input had to match the output. Too many of us are spiritual gluttons. Oh, I hope you have a rich and high calorie intake of God's word in your life. I do. I don't want to diminish that. I don't want to ask you to be in God's word less. I don't want to ask you to be in Bible study less. But I do want to challenge you not to be a church full of fat, happy, Bible-feeding Christians who don't do any exercise who don't share the gospel, who don't do good to others, who don't put it to work. That's not what God has left us here for. We gather, we take in, we refuel, we recharge, we grow, we take steps together, we love God more, and then we go out and we make him known. The exercise has to match the intake. If your intake of God's word is small, if your spiritual life is emaciated, so will your spiritual output. If your intake of God's word is huge and your output is small, you'll be fat and unhealthy as a Christian. I want you to hear that. Unhealthy. If you take in massive amounts of God's word and you don't do good for anybody else, you're an unhealthy Christian. You need to have a rich diet of God's word and faithful exercise in doing spiritual good to others at home at work, in the church, where you play, while your kids are playing Little League, anywhere, everywhere. That's what God, that's what God has put you for, there for. And so as a church, what's going to hem us in, what we are going to value in all of our ministries is the teaching of the word, the sharing of the gospel, both to believers and non-believers alike. Church unity, healthy relationships, spiritual dependence, and discipleship, doing good for one another. Let's pray. Lord, we, we want to be this kind of church. And it requires conviction, and, and many of us are probably convicted in different ways. Lord, I pray that you would convict us, that, that, that your word ha, would have reproved and rebuked and, and exhorted and taught us today. Lord, show us where our thinking is wrong, Show us how to think rightly. Show us where our action is wrong and how to live rightly. And Father, we, may we uh, simply, faithfully do good for one another, depend upon one another, preach the gospel, share with the lost, call others to believe and to repent. Lord, let there not be any respectable sins found among us. Let us also not be the sin police thinking that we need to beat sin out of other people. May we as a church be more concerned with our own sin than the sins of the world. May we, may we understand that as a church, confession is healthy for us and good. That confession is the sign of, of the health of a church, not of unhealth. Because from now to eternity, there will be something to confess. But Lord, let us also take our own sin seriously. Let us, let us show the world that we take sin seriously, not by battling their sin, but by battling our own. 
May, may we understand that it doesn't profit anyone to gain the whole world and lose their soul. But that we would simply proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified as first importance. That we would proclaim who you are as God, who we are as people, what you have done for us in Jesus Christ and our response of, of faith and repentance. That we would trust you and love you more than we love our own sin. Lord, and as we come now to your table, would you, would you let this be the, the unifying and bonding act that it is? Would you remind us that you are present with us here today, that it is not merely a memorial, though we do remember what you have done for us, but that we have real communion with you and real communion with one another? Not through the elements, they are just symbols, but because you are present and we are here together and you are with us. And so would you unify us in this time for your glory and for our good and for the spread of the gospel. And may we proclaim your death and resurrection through it until you come. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and Happy New Year to you. I can't think of a much better way to start the year than by the observance of communion. And so we get an opportunity to do that here. And, uh, you know, there's so much talk this time of year about um, bettering yourself, about self-examination. And again, I can't think of a much better way to sort of measure our lives than by how we prioritize ourselves around uh, what Jesus has done for us and then our response to that. And so we get an opportunity to do that this morning as we observe communion. And as I was reflecting uh, this evening on this uh, observance, I'm struck by the fact that all six of these values that we've just been sharing, they're really present in, in this observance of communion. And I want to maybe just uh, highlight that briefly as we prepare to do this. First of all, uh, the scripture, the Bible is present. You know, even uh, Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthian church, he says, I've uh, receive from the Lord that which I passed on to you. He roots this, this observance of communion firmly in uh, the scriptures, in the record of the gospels, in Jesus' own uh, final uh, week with his apostles. It's rooted right there in the scriptures. And, and certainly the gospel is present. This is a, a tangible and very physical uh, uh, depiction of, of what Jesus has done, his blood and his body, uh, broken for us, poured out for us, giving us the opportunity to be free from sin and united with him in holiness forever. And unity, as, as Logan just uh, mentioned, it's, it's an act of unifying. There's one body, there's one bread. We uh, do this not only as unifying ourselves in this body, but unifying ourselves with all the, uh, the followers of Jesus who, has co who have come before us and who, uh, who are uh, spread out around our community and around our world, and, and it's a very unifying act. And, and relationships, it, it gives us the opportunity to sort of uh, level the playing field. You know, there is no uh, hierarchy when we all are united around uh, uh, submitting ourselves to the work of Jesus in our lives. 
And then uh, dependence, maybe that goes without saying, but uh, none of us would even have the opportunity to observe this if we didn't acknowledge our own dependence on the Lord, but also dependence upon each other. It is an act of, uh, a communal act, a, a unifying act as well, so that vertical and horizontal dependence. And finally, it's simply an act of discipleship and that we're preaching the gospel to each other as we partake of these elements. Not only are we uh, infusing our own lives with the gospel, but we're reflecting on that uh, together, preaching the gospel to each other. So so these values that we've shared, they are uh, uh, present, each of them, in, in some ways through this observance of communion. So I'm going to ask the, the men who are serving to come forward at this time, and then I'll say a word of prayer. I always love that moment when the men are sort of like eyeing each other around the room. like, mm, 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 mm. All right. Let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, distribute these elements. Father God, you are uh, good, you are holy, you are uh, the, the you deserve all the glory and praise in the universe, and yet you uh, love us so much that you gave your one and only Son, gave him as a sacrifice to, uh, to cleanse us from the sin that is uh, an ever-present part of this world. And uh, we reflect on that great sacrifice this morning, and yet we can't even reflect on that without knowing the rest of the story, that you uh, did not stay dead. Your son Jesus rose from the grave in order to uh, affirm that uh, that work is finished, that there is no more uh, payment necessary to cover sin, that uh, all that has been paid for, and, and so we are allowed and, and, and invited to walk a new life, to, to live a new life that is in you, that is united with you, and that will be with you uh, forever and ever. So we, we uh, take this as a, an act of sober reflection, but it's also an act of worshipful celebration in the sense that we can't divorce those two uh, pieces one from the other. And so as we uh, uh, partake of these elements together, Lord, first of all, give us a, a fresh sense of these values that really move our church into the future, and also give us a fresh sense of just how uh, amazing and how uh, um, uh, powerful the work that you've done in us and the work that you want to continue to do in us is. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. And so we share 
Scriptures tell us, uh, I received from the Lord that which I passed on to you on the night he was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. God, we are grateful again for uh, the opportunity to uh, begin this year by reflecting on uh, the old, old story, what you have done for us, Lord. And I pray that you would lead not only us as individuals, but lead our church into a future that is uh, centered on you, that is rooted in the gospel, that is uh, living out these values that we've talked about in a way that is uh, compelling to our community. We pray these things. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 